You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from bulk metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. Thanks everyone for coming out. I'm James Creech, co-founder and CEO of Paladin. We build enterprise software for next-gen media companies like MCNs and digital publishers. We help them save time and grow their businesses. But today we're focused on a panel about the future of online video. We've got some pretty distinguished guests. I'm honored to have Phil Ranta, the COO of US for Studio 71, Shauna Miller at the far end from the Director of Programming from Kin Community, Eric Brownstein, the Chief Strategy Officer from Shareability, and Louisa Huang from Feldspar Ventures. Before we begin, I'd like to give a special thanks to Feldspar for being our gracious host this evening. Uh, Love their Arts District workspace, and they were nice enough to kind of clean up their office and let us use it for the event, so thanks again. And also would like to give a special thank you to Silicon Beach Fest for bringing the convergence of media, entertainment, and tech together and letting us celebrate that. We're broadcasting live tonight on Facebook, and we'll also be capturing it for my All Things Video podcast, uh, which is available on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, and other fine places where podcasts are, are found. And we'll save a bit of time for Q&A at the end, followed by refreshments and a chance to discuss these topics as a group. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and let the panelists introduce themselves, starting with Shana. Okay. Let us know a little bit about your background and what you focus on at your company. Hi, I'm Shauna. Um, I'm the Director of Programming at Kin Community. Um, before I started working for Kin, I was a content creator myself. I started a blog in 2010 called Penny Chic. It was a uh, resource for women that were looking for um, solutions for affordable style. Ended up turning into a apparel line with Walmart, and I published a book and did a bunch of kind of offshoot projects within the brand and then um, started kind of looking at other things and found Kin Community. It's a network, a video network for women. We started as an MCN and now we both produce our own original content and have a community of female creators and uh, I oversee the content strategy and distribution for the network. Hey, I'm Eric Brownstein. I'm uh, one of the partners at Shareability. We're a social content studio. We make really cool content, primarily video. Um, We do it for big brands, we make original content, and we launch brands with social content. We are an end-to-end solution, so we're doing everything from research through creative production, post-production, and distribution. Um, we're working with a whole range of clients from the Pepsis and the AT&Ts of the world to uh, random European telecoms to hand sanitizer venture-backed startups. I kind of wear a bunch of different hats there. My background is video distribution and I ran a social media agency for a while. So I brought the strategy and the distribution to shareability after we took funding from the churning group uh, at the beginning of this year. Hi, I'm Louisa, and I am the co-founder of uh, Feldspar Ventures, and uh, Feldspar is an incubator studio that works with creators of early-stage IP, and we work on 
really co-developing and um, laddering their IP from early stage into um, entertainment franchises. And uh, my background is uh, really the studio, the traditional studio world, um, Warner Brothers and Disney, and uh, working on strategy and digital digital media strategy. Hi, I'm Phil Ranta. I'm the CEO of Studio 71. Uh, we're one of the largest influencer networks in the world. We say we're a digital media company built with talent in mind, but everyone on the internet is talented. So. We've got a network of about a thousand creators doing about five billion monthly views on YouTube. Uh, we make movies and TV shows with YouTubers, and then we also have a sales department where we did about a thousand branded videos last year. And before that, I was VP of networks at Fullscreen. There we go. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for being here. We're going to have a lot of fun tonight. I'm excited about it. And the topic is focused on the future of the online video space. But before we talk about what's next, let's take a step back and, and think about how we got here, right? People have thought for years about how to put video on the internet. What were the seminal events that finally led to where we are today? I'll start. So when I was in college, uh, I was a film major in college. And I think the first website that grabbed me and I think grabbed a lot of people in my generation was Newgrounds. It was uh, one of those very early video sites where it all ran on Flash, so it was mostly Flash animation and Flash games. And the big thing back then was it was free hosting, so you could actually make something and then put it up, and then other people could see it and give it awards, and you could follow your favorite creators. I don't know if anyone knows Weeble, but he's still big on YouTube, but that was his first thing. So I would say that was kind of the seminal moment, once they, you allowed people to be able to just post videos and then share it for free kind of opened up the community. And then naturally when YouTube launched, for those of us who were working in digital at the time, it was like, oh my God, free hosting. And then we started putting stuff on there because we managed that video. And I think through the lens of uh, marketing and advertising. So not so much from the creator's perspective in terms of what kicked things to another level. So in, it was probably 2007, about a year after YouTube was getting going, before TechCrunch was a really big publication. I read an article about a guy who could basically hack YouTube and figure out how to get a bunch of views. And I called him and said, you know, what's it going to cost me to do this for this company that I'm doing some work for? And he said, well, I'll guarantee you get a million views for 10,000 bucks. And I said, sign us up. Had no idea how he got the views. You know, they were all obviously shady and, you know, crappy views. But at the end of the day, that was way before anyone had any clue, but it woke brands up to the fact that they could basically guarantee an audience. And as things kind of evolved from there, it became much more clear that there was different ways of getting audience. But to me, that was a real kind of first step towards taking things to another level is how brands are going to participate. So I think we sort of, outside of distribution, we talk about the equipment and the lowering in terms of like the barriers of entries for people making content. And I think um, nothing's changed more than just the, you know, I'm holding up my mobile device. The fact that you can point this mobile device at something or somebody and be able to just simply make content. And everybody has access to one of these now, basically for, for free, right? Um, and, and I think that really... What, what we saw was that changed the game in having the access for everyone to be a content creator, for everyone to be able to hold up their phone and be able to, to share their thoughts. You know, what's amazing is just like how far that's come, the fact that we're live streaming through this very mobile device. And that, that I think is a, 
you know, pretty big unlocking in terms of like the accessibility and, the, and allowing people to have like voice. I was going to take a more abs- even more abstract perspective on this, but if you really just look at the history of media, we're just constantly breaking boundaries of how we can engage at a more intimate level. And there's no question that video is that medium that creates that intimacy between a creator and their audience. And um, we're just continuing to push that with live and with all of these things. I mean, when you think about an image versus a video, it's a no-brainer that that has now evolved to where it is. I love it. I mean, I think all of those viewpoints are well taken, and it's things that whose evolutions in the technology, right, democratizing access so that anyone can virtually become a creator, and it's evolution in the business models, right? Offering free hosting and monetizing through advertising rather than transactions or subscriptions uh, that enable you know these sites to distribute and monetize content. So now that we've had an explosion in digital content online, we've seen a number of traditional players also getting into the game. And what do you think that the traditional and digital worlds can learn from one another? A ton, an absolute ton. Uh, so we work with a lot of branded clients, and back when I was at full screen, we worked with a lot of brand clients as well. We worked with NBC and at uh, Studio Seventy One. We worked with the Tonight Show for a while and Lip Sync Battle. You start to see a lot more convergence now than you used to. Like the Tonight Show is essentially a series of YouTube videos now that's then strung out into a full show, so that it can be a super viral hit on the internet, but also can be satisfying as a TV show. But I think very few have kind of cracked that code. And the the idea of it is that when you're putting content online, you have to think like a creator and you have to think like a digital audience, which is what's the utility of the video? How do you make it the right length for somebody to stay engaged when they are in a universe where you can click off very simply? And then on the digital audience, since we've seen a lot of failures to start where digital stars have tried to go onto traditional media and it hasn't quite worked out, um, it's because they're not thinking like a traditional audience. They might be thinking too much like a digital audience, right? So you don't have to be as, I guess, spelling it out about what content you're about to get. Like you don't have titles and thumbnails. You don't have the benefit of having the exposition be done before you even click in. You actually have to tell a bit more of the story in order to be on television. So I think they have a lot to learn from each other. And I think that we still haven't really cracked the code on digital enough for us to say, yeah, we've got it all figured out. TV just needs to listen to us because it's, you know, Snapchat comes along and changes everything. So there's going to be another platform like that next year and another platform the year after that. So they have to just keep up. So what, what I love about that, actually, you said the magic word um, for me um, and, and for, for us as a, a company, we really focus on this idea of story. And we talk about the fact that you have, you know, what, what's great about the traditional world and the thing that they've really focused on is this notion of story. Like they, they spend a lot of time developing and thinking about that and, and crafting that in in you know, a little bit of a black box before ever showing it to the audience. It's like, it's the baby, right? So, so they spend years and years and years in, in development, in discussion, meetings, and, and ripping scripts apart and putting them back together to build stories. And, and I think, you know, there, there is one thing where we do, coming from this traditional world, um, that maybe we don't necessarily um, have an appreciation for is that, that time taken to build stories and that time taken to build something that is going to have 
um, this notion of replay, right? There's a reason why a lot of like the classics and the and the movies that we're okay watching over and over and over again is just that the time that it takes to really craft the characters and craft the stories is going to touch our heartstrings. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time at Disney and and probably spent a lot of time on like you know Pixar properties, and there's a reason why whenever you think about the characters, there's no person that I speak to that the first 15 minutes of up, like when I say that, when you hear that first streams of those, that music, that doesn't make you just kind of feel something. And, and I think there's definitely that story component, building lasting characters that makes such like an impression that I think the traditional world does so well. But at the same time, in the digital world, the speed and agility, that's sort of where the... Um, on the flip side, the traditional world could probably take a bit more of like a page from is the fact that sometimes you don't need to take six years to talk about that one character and to discuss the color of you know the shirt or like to figure out whether or not this is exactly the right PMS color for this particular logo because there is like a fine finding. Like I like to use analogies and Sometimes I talk about analogies and, and kind of bring it into the content development world. And you know, ever find yourself where you move into a bigger house, and just because you have a bigger house, then you just accumulate more stuff. And I think that's also what happens in the traditional world where they forget, and because they've had so much time, that they just build and build and build. And that's you know, creating the story is great, but then sometimes like they get bogged down by details. And I think that's sort of the other side is where they can you know kind of learn from each other. Yeah, just because you can make something cheaper and faster doesn't mean it's obviously necessarily better. And I think that what we've seen that has worked in the digital world is how content creators develop stories through themselves, right? So that works because that's pulling from that authentic place where it's the most genuine and the most authentic, not to say the same word twice, but um, that doesn't mean media companies can so... Uh, did you know next gen media companies can pull from that same place? Um, so they kind of have to not just operate as like an aggregator of content creators that have done that so easily for themselves, but think about what that format looks like as a media company the same way that the traditional entertainment industries has done. I was going to talk about stories like in our company, one of our partners just won the Academy Award two years ago. Our head of creative is Academy-nominated director, and they come from the traditional world. And we talk a lot about the power of Hollywood storytelling. And so when we're creating a branded video for Cricket Wireless, you know, we're thinking through the lens of story, 100%, like what makes this story worthy. Um, at the same time, you know, our other co-founder grew up in Provo, Utah, was kind of the one of the guys behind the guys of all these big YouTube channels that have been super trends of the world. And so for that, it was all about, well, what does my audience want and what is shareable? Like what will make someone take this piece of content and actually share it? And so what we found is there's a lot of spectrum going on. You've got the BuzzFeeds of the world that can make great videos that are super shareable, but have nothing to do with the brand. And so I'm often dealing with the brand side of things. And then you've got the agencies who might be able to tell a beautiful story, but it's completely not shareable. So you've got even potentially a great piece of content that's not a shareable piece of content. It doesn't hit the right emotional triggers. So finding that bridge 
there's a lot of learning that can go back and forth. So we talked about the technology changes. We mentioned a little bit some of the business models have evolved as well. So what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen? And as we've kind of gone through evolutions in how MCNs operate, how digital publishers are operating, what are the business models of the future going to look like? I'll do a quick one on this. I mean, so we've been talking to the guy who runs Pepsi's content studio, and they've been investing a lot of money into building what they consider a next generation studio. So what does that even mean, right? You've got Pepsi, which is a brand, and they're investing in content, and it's not just commercials and you know, branded videos. They're looking at original content, longer form content, you name it. So I think one of the things that's already started and will continue is how brands are going to play a bigger role in the content. You know, you can have a YouTuber who creates a movie and they get you know seven hundred thousand dollars from Skittles to help fund the movie. So, you know, and it's it's a soft integration. It's not like holding up skills. It's just in there. So interesting to me seeing how the brands are going to play along. I think in the future, in terms of business models, at least from like a content creator standpoint, it's going to be hard to find one specific lane in which their business model is going to work. Monetization in single streams as it pertains to content is going to be I believe harder and harder for you know for it to be a sustainable um, source of source of revenue to be able to you know power entire companies. So so I think more than more than ever you're going to find that people are going to find ways to be able to diversify their revenue streams so that it's no longer just about selling a piece of content or getting a sponsor or selling advertisement. Um, it, it's going to be. Um, a mix of all of those things. Uh, I think that, I mean, we're in a really interesting time, so I think the kids that are growing up nowadays are used to content being free. And I never had a time in my childhood where I was watching cable or watching HBO where I went, oh, my parents don't have to pay for this, because I knew that they did. And uh, now kids are growing up and saying, oh, well, you know, I have to watch a five-second ad, and then I skip, and then I've, I get to consume this content. And I think that we're we're training people to to not want to put that genie back in the bottle, which I don't think is a bad thing, right? So when a lot of people are launching SVOD platforms, OTT platforms, talking about unbundling cable, I'm skeptical because I think that when a lot of the kids who are 14 years old now hit 22 and have to go pay for their own thing, they're probably going to say, well, is the internet, the free stuff good enough? And if that's not good enough, then maybe they'll get a HBO Go or something really premium or Netflix, which has everything, or Hulu, which also has everything. Um, and then maybe they'll subscribe to a niche community, right? Like if you love WWE, you got WWE Network, it's $9.99 a month. It's not going to break the bank. And I think that the days of spending $140 a month on your entertainment package quickly coming to an end. I agree that branded content is going to become huge on the creator side because Eventually, people are going to want to make more than 30 grand a year, and it's really hard to do that without brands. But yeah, I think that media consumption is going to be really hard to monetize in the future. And I don't see somebody coming up with that magic solution where they're like, this is what it's going to take to get enough people to spend 100 bucks again. So I think that time has passed. At last count, there were over 200 subscription video services. So what do you think is going to happen to all those SBOT platforms? And there's new ones popping up all the time, right? 
I got an opinion on that. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, you know, Amazon's already started what I think the wave of the future is going to be, which is Amazon, you get Prime, you get a bajillion videos, and that's super cool, and it's worth it. And then they start to have videos inside of it where you click on it and it goes, oh, this is part of CISO. If you want CISO, it's another $4.99. You'll be able to transact, you know, depending on how wealthy you are or what your threshold is for spending. But I think that all of these SVODs living as separate apps is going to die. It's going to be more like the kind of Asian model of kind of having this massive app that's got lots of kind of upsold, almost like freemium models inside. And, you know, a lot of them are going to go away. It's, going to, it's a lot of stress to put on a company. But so I'd say they have a couple years to have that one or two killer shows that every kid on the schoolyard is talking about. And if they don't find that killer show in a couple of years, they probably they're going to start dying out rather quickly. Any other thoughts Sorry. on SWOT? I don't know if it 100% relates to SWOT, and this is definitely not my area of expertise, but one thing that we think a lot about is a catchphrase of my partner's, which he says is, niche is rich. And this idea of, you know, this smaller communities that are super passionate are actually the ones that are willing to cough up the bucks if you're giving them something that's really valuable. Well, my next question is a bit controversial, but that's okay. It was designed to be that way. And Phil already kind of got us started, and I love it. So we're going to dive in. I want to, add, I want to know, what trends in the digital video space do you see as short-term fads? What is headed for a brick wall and maybe uh, is not designed to last? That is controversial. I, I think that funding for platforms is as good now as it's ever going to be. Um, I think people are starting to realize that they can't put... $10 million into a startup and expect it to be Snapchat because there's very few Snapchats and there's about a bajillion people that think that they're going to be the next Snapchat. So I think investor funding is going to start cutting off for those and start leaning into the companies that know how to play with brands and know how to achieve scale on top of other platforms that are already popular. I think that there's a lot of content trends that are leaning towards clickability right now. And I think that algorithmically, uh, the platforms are going to start pushing against that. Um, in fact, it's already kind of started with YouTube with their watch time metrics. They're trying to push out the people who are yeah, like, click here, click here, click here. And then it's kind of a substandard experience once you're in. So I think a lot of those people like gaming the system are going to start really struggling. And then, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the idea of people saying, hey, I know how to make kids pay for things. I think they're all going to get a, have a cold shower pretty soon and figure out that that's not possible. It was, I think what Louisa mentioned earlier, the, the power of the, the smartphone and being able to become a content creator, but I'm kind of excited about some of the, the tools from a production standpoint that we now have, like the Mevo camera for live streaming that allows you to toggle di through different angles and essentially have like a morning show, a, the control room for a morning show on your phone. As a company, we are trying to also empower the you know producers within our organization to be able to create content um, through their phone for our platforms because we have to churn out so much content now and we have our own kind of daily tune-in format that we're developing and it's going to help to have those kinds of devices to use. And other than that, um, I mean, we're just trying as a company to stray away from the shiny object kind of addiction of kind of looking left and right we don't really know what's going to happen. And if you ask me five years, I actually, I, I'm not good at this. Five years ago, I would have told you Snapchat was never going to last. And that was so overhyped. Like, nobody knows. And so I think um, 
for us, like the dust has settled and we see where the eyeballs are and we're trying to put our head down and create content for women that's compelling and that can drive them through that tunnel if we are gonna create, you know, diversify um, revenue stream and create a product other than content to sell to them. Well, if you're inviting any controversy, I guess I'll try. I think that one of the things that is has already started to run into a bit of a brick wall is creators that are good at something trying to do something else. Um, so you have creators that are trying to get into movies or trying to do other content, and the movies suck, and their audience is going, you know, what the hell have you just asked me to spend my money on? I love when you make your videos, but come on. So I think that, you know, you see this with like a, a big MCN, like an awesomeness or something where, you know, they may create something because they have the audience and it's just super subpar content. So I think that you've got a lot of enthusiasm for tapping into creators' audiences um, and them thinking that they can do that. And I think that's going to be a bit of a wake-up call. So I think along the creator lines, um, I, I think what we might start to see is the idea that you have people that can just point the cameras at themselves and do something for shock value and be able to amass like ginormous followings and, and keeping those ginormous followings and continuing to do things that are like more you know gimmicky and shock value oriented. I think that that's probably something that personally. Um, I'll be glad to see go away um, because I, I do think that there's a lot more. There are people who are, you know, the ones that are staying in this uh, space to create content. They're getting smarter about what it is that they're creating. They see, they see exactly what, um, you know, kind of we've, we've talked about is, you know, the evolution towards stories. So even as they jump into this content creation game, they are being more about, well, you know, what is the message? What am I trying to build? Um, and it's not just like, hey, just for fun today, I'm going to, you know, scream at the camera and, and have a reaction. So they're really, and, and they might be really a group of people, you know, like maybe two or three friends getting together and saying, I want to create, you know, this type of content. And they're, they're certainly more thoughtful around it. And, and I think that's something that, um, you know, like the single person sort of doing something and, and just kind of keeping that up over a period of time and that's the only thing that they're offering, I think that's probably going to be something that goes away. Well, thank you all for being courageous and sharing uh, some of the facts that you, you think are overhyped. I'll contribute a few as well. Um, I agree with Phil. I think there is a bit of an SVOD craze that uh, we'll still see a lot of dollars pumped into SVOD content and platforms for the next two to three years. But at the end of the day, it's inefficient, right? You can't support 200 platforms. Not enough people have the strength of a programming brand to, uh, to power their own subscription service. And from a user standpoint, it's too cluttered. No one can, can bear that many subscriptions. The other one that I have a bone to pick with uh, is influencer marketing platforms and agencies. I think there are far too many that are undifferentiated and don't provide true value to either the brands or the influencers. Now, obviously, there are some incredible companies out there that do that. There are obviously MCNs, talent agencies that fulfill that need as well. But the marketplace is too cluttered right now. Just in LA, everyone reps you know, the same talent seems. And what's happening is we're driving rates down, both for influencers and brands aren't getting good experiences. So at the end of the day, I think there needs to be a solution or, or some groups that, that can show that they have either a direct, um, exclusive relationship with the talent and can do incredible content. 
I think Studio 71 is a great example. It's a good track record of doing that, and there are many others. But you know, I think that uh, there's too many platforms pursuing that dream today. But let's switch gears and let's talk about some trends that are obviously here to stay. One of them, I think, is live streaming, right? Um, Sean, I kind of talked earlier about how with every technological innovation, we're seeing uh, breaking down of walls and an increasingly closer relationship between creators and their audience. And I think live stream takes that to the next level, right? So what are your thoughts on live streaming? Are you doing things with live streaming today? And what does the future hold? We certainly are. That's one of our number one focuses in our content strategy this, for 2017 and the rest of 2016. Just um, experimenting, frankly. Um, we don't know enough about what that looks like if you're not just going to piggyback on talent to, to uh, create views. So we're trying to kind of study what that's looked like in live television formats and also look at what we have at our fingertips, how to how to kind of merge all the the um, merge all the insights that we have from the different kinds of content we do, which ranges from DIY food recipes, demonstrations, which tend to do well on live streaming, but there's a lot of kind of pre-production that has to go into that. So just um, experimenting with it, and ultimately um, for us, we we're moving in November, and we. Um, our number one kind of priority is finding a space that could accommodate for a small studio that was flexible and malleable as far as set and uh, could churn out content and allow us to test and experiment. I want to hear the rest of your thoughts too, but real quick, just out of yeah. curiosity, what have you seen as the differences between traditional yeah. broadcast television yeah. live content yeah. and live streaming and digital platforms? I think that it's interesting because you know, I also used to be an on-camera expert on a lot of the morning shows, and um, other than being also a woman, in addition to that, I think that there's been, there hasn't been the kind of revolution in lifestyle content in that format yet, and I think there is something about, like, the fact that the Today Show is live feels like it's really intimate, and yet, at the same time, there's something kind of fake about it. So now that we have, like, the fact that, you know, live stream, we have these live streaming capabilities and platforms, it's, it's going to be important to tell a story that's not just, like, totally unhinged, <laughs> um, that's grounded in something, but still come off as real and not hosty. And, I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't really know that question yet, but I think it's interesting in um, female-centric lifestyle content and kind of looking at things in a less archaic Martha Stewart way and really speaking to um, the concerns of women today who who generally do like to tune in to live content as a kind of general format. So I think you know for us we still very much in the experimental phase of live streaming. We do a lot of uh, kids animated products or content and and so it's a little harder to really think about live streaming but we this is very much you know a hot topic and so it's it is about you know researching and experimenting and sort of thinking about well you know what is the right format and and how do you embed that into the things that we do so that it's not just viewed as jumping on the bandwagon to do live streaming for the sake of live streaming and so so a lot of the stuff that we're thinking about is um for that is behind the scenes look to give a little bit more authenticity, give them like access to the artists behind um, the scenes creating 
creating the content and being able to see the, the full sort of like snippet of a creation of a character or, or, or how maybe even a part of like the development process works. I think that, you know, I would look at the traditional format of, of, of live TV as kind of hit, um, hacks and tips and tricks and the expert, right, that's very kind of far away from you. And I think, like Louisa said, you really want to watch something come alive and you want to watch that arc in real time. And I think that's why, you know, cooking has done so well um, from some of the Facebook live research that they've looked at. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, what does that mean, right? Like, it's, it's tough to, I mean, from a production standpoint, I can tell you on a micro level, it's just tough to make those wow, like, wow moments and those arcs happen on camera and look perfect. And, you know, even, even in the case of live television, there's always been kind of tricks and loopholes to that. So, yeah, I think demonstrations is really what we're going to be focusing on, live food demos and um, making things live, like Bob Ross, but cooler. There's a lot of fads that are just starting out. Well, they're not fads because they're here to stay. It's a lot of things that are just starting out now that are here to stay. Live is awesome. Live isn't going anywhere. It's going to keep growing. Uh, we just did a thing with Roman Atwood where he ran over a cop car with a monster truck and it got <laughs> 1.2 million people tuning into a stream on uh, live.me. There's something dangerous and sexy about live that kind of Snapchat was filling that thing earlier where you're like, oh, it's a little private, so anything can happen. I might see something scary or weird or a little too real. Um, live is now starting to slot into that very nicely. So I think live is here to stay. The immediacy of it is crazy. And if it is kind of a chat back show, like you can't beat that in terms of pure connection to your audience to have them ask a question and you answer it back. For people in my generation, I always explain it like Jonathan Taylor Thomas being able to like, you getting to ask him a question and him say something like, I know a million people in my school that would have paid a ton of money to be able to ask Jonathan Taylor Thomas a question and have him say something, or Leonardo DiCaprio after Titanic. And live can do that now, and it's free, and it's awesome. In terms of other things that I think are sticking around, I think augmented reality is going to replace this down the line. Um, I think VR is going to have a home. I don't know if it's going to replace the television necessarily, because it's a little too secluded, but I think that it'll probably have a home, at the very least, in kind of more utilitarian things real estate and medical and probably entertainment experiences, but probably not as a primary source, still a little gimmicky. And I'm really excited about the kind of building of an entertainment middle class. For those of you who have friends or you yourself are an actor in Hollywood, you know you're kind of like a waiter and then somebody casts you in things and then you're doing well. And there's you're missing a gap right there where you can spend 10 years just like making a good living and I feel like the internet's doing that. There's lots of people who are just like, I've got the number one quilting channel on YouTube. I make $50,000 a year, and it's the same $50,000 a year I'm going to make forever, but it's cool because I don't have a boss. And I want to see more of that, and I don't think that's going away. So I'm excited for that to hang around. Well, I just want to give you a, a quick thank you for watching the quilting channel. <laughs> but, but also, Eric, uh, how are brands reacting to live streaming? Are there brand safety sensitivities or other issues around live? Yeah, we're not... Having a lot of conversations about live at this point, when we're talking about it, it's usually, and we could do some live video as well as sort of part of a bigger package. Behind the scenes, you know, 
while we're making you know the brand videos and so on. So I haven't I haven't had brands asking for it yet. Well, Phil uh, brought us firmly into the world of immersive video. So 360 AR VR. What are brands asking for there? Same, not much yet. I mean, I think um, you've got the things that you see where a brand comes out and does something cool. These are way the outliers. Most brands are still clueless when it comes to creating any kind of interesting branded content, let alone something cool that's 360 or VR or AR or live streaming. So I think, you know, the reality of most brand marketing as it relates to video is still pretty, uh, pretty primitive. What about the rest of you? Any thoughts on AR or VR? Again, we're, we're just trying to, to do what we know best, and that is um, content for women that matters to them. And so, um, no, I mean, aside from my like geeky pastime of reading about that stuff, not really, no. We think about it and have a lot of conversations around it um, for kids, kids and family content. VR is a tough, uh, it's, a, it's a tough sort of like uh, technology because of there's just like a lot of uh, safety, I guess, questions around the impact of having these goggles on, you know, a kid's, kid's head and, and, and visions and, you know, the impact and all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, VR is still probably a ways off and, and I question whether or not that's actually going to be something that's going to um, be a category that's going to be for kids. Um, AR, however, is really interesting. I think, you know, the Pokemon Go craze is really, you know, a demonstration of that. Although I saw a really, really, you know, fierce debate on Facebook the other day where somebody was like adamant that that was not actually AR and it's, it's actually a slightly different than AR and they got really upset about the fact that Pokemon Go is called AR. But for my, my understanding and purposes, I'm going to call it AR and we're really excited about, you know, the, the ability to be able to have the sort of like immersive characters um, come alive through the, the you know phone for kids, and and we can see like kids these days are super super you know engaged with the mobile devices, and and I think that AR is going to unlock a lot of like different sort of like characters and storytelling that you're going to be able to implement on um, storytelling for kids. Yeah, I'll fight that person. I think it's totally augmented reality. I mean, put you in touch. The way that I perceive AR is, is when you just kind of layer a different reality onto this reality, and the fact that I have to walk to my park to go to my pony staff, it's totally augmented reality. Um, what level are you? I'm a 21 Valor. Wow. Anyone else team Valor? Bring it in. There we go. Who in the audience Why? is playing Pokemon Go? There you go. <laughs> a lot of people kind of sheepishly afraid to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It gets really slow to gain levels later on, but that's how they suck in. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Like the VR experiences, the only ones I've seen that have really crushed it are entertainment properties, and I think they do it because they can go to trade shows and get a huge line behind it, which is cool because it takes forever to get people in and out of them. And then they get to sit and watch a really high-end commercial for a couple minutes. And that's worth a lot to an entertainment brand, but to Clorox, you know, maybe not. So I think we're a ways out. Once HMDs start, you know, becoming a bit more ubiquitous or they find a way to do the Gear VR in a way where it's not like you have to take the phone out over and over again, select something, put it in. Like, maybe, but I think that technologically we're not close to there yet. So if you're looking to throw your brand dollars into something, maybe if you're going to a trade show, but other than that, I wouldn't recommend it yet. So we're still waiting on lightsabers. 
our hoverboards don't actually levitate off the ground and we don't have self-lacing self -lacing sneakers. But thinking ahead into the far distant future, what do you see for the online video space? I see a lot more of the Truman showing of America uh, and worldwide. Uh, and we've kind of already seen this happening, right? Like you get YouTube and then you can see in people's bedroom whatever they choose for a couple minutes. And then like uh, Instagram came out and you can see where they are and Twitter, they're telling you where they are. And then Snapchat, it's kind of consistent and it's not shameful to be shooting all the time. And then live, you're literally live streaming your whole life. Like we're slowly getting to the point where people are going to have four cameras set up all the time. I mean, already on you now, you can follow the hashtag. I think it's watch me while I sleep. And people are actually watching that now and like donating money to people while they sleep, which is a brilliant business plan, but so creepy, so creepy. So I, I think that we're going to lean towards that. And you kind of have to, in the same way you do with Instagram, kind of curate your life around what my what my few viewers are watching and fit that into your life a little bit more. I hope it's not true, but I see it happening and that freaks me out. And then I also think that media consumption is becoming everywhere and there's constantly a screen and everybody's playing Pokemon Go and looking down at their phone all the time. And I think that technology is going to find ways to feed you more stories and more of your days. So you're either going to be making something or watching something all the time unless you actively choose not to. I think that in the end, it has to have a purpose. And I think what makes a lot of what I've seen successful, you look at especially Pokemon Go, is that it's bringing you actually back to reality in a weird way. Like it's making you an active participant on some really sick level, you know? And I think that it's gonna have to have that purpose. It's almost like maybe how technology gives back to reality <laughs> um, by kind of getting you out there. It's like. When I think of, I don't know, what, what would Dance Dance Revolution be considered? Not not augmented reality, what is that? Just sensors? Interactive. Interactive something. The but best it, dance game. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 listen, it was a crazy experience for me, but maybe. Um, but I think the purpose is to, you know, put you in touch with your body and make you dance and have fun. And like, um, and it's a social experience. Like, I think it has to have a social element um, beyond just like, Looking at your phone has to connect you back to uh, the world. So there's a great book that everyone should read just because it was an influential book for me, so I proclaim it to be influential for everyone, <laughs> called Everything Bad is Good for You. <laughs> and uh, it's by a philosopher named Robert Johnson. You know, it's a great book for a parent who has kids and they're stressing out about TV and video games and things like that. Um, and he makes the case that I think is really compelling that television, good television, especially where it is now compared to where it was, you know, back in Meyer, it was like Three's Company and these completely mindless TV shows um, has evolved quite a bit. And you can, even with reality shows, you can watch people's conversations online and realize there's a lot of analysis going on and so on. Gets into the same thing with video games about how, you know, they create this goal-oriented kind of opportunity for kids and so I look at something like Pokemon Go, and I've got two, you know, boys, and I love that they're completely obsessed with this game. They're trying to figure everything out. They're out in the world kind of mapping their reality and to a game, which I think is really cool. So I think you'll see the evolution of that with video more and more of, like, where that crossover between video and game and reality plays out. Um, so I think that's going to be a big evolution, and the quality of the content is the other one. So 
the amount of crap that my kids watch on YouTube is astounding because it's funny and I'll watch it with them and I get something. It's like funny prank videos that you can literally sit and watch for two hours. So once again, I used to watch a ton of Three's Company. Why? Just because it was like crack. So the crack will get better and I think the evolution of videos is going to only improve. We think that we talk a lot about, you know, kind of like the 360 evolution of like big brands and big entertainment brands. So, um, you know, take a Disney, take a Warner Brothers. They have the ability to take something that, you know, is this big tentpole movie and then translate it to a ton of products where you can't like trip over something and not find the products and then, you know, make games out of it and then make a theme park out of it and then make more movies out of it. And it's just like, you know, full experience and it never ends. And, and we think that that actually, you know, the, that, that whole thing uh, hinges on this concept of like the licensing model where you, you know, have this big, big, you know, influential piece of uh, property or IP and then that's able to drive all of this other commerce. So I think spinning forward, I, I think that the world might actually look even beyond licensing is, is what I'm calling it. And it's going to tie back to Pokemon Go because I think that's what we should talk about the rest of the night is <laughs> Pokemon Go. Um, so Pokemon Go, like the first sort of like brush of Pokemon Go and how it started. I don't know, like, do you guys know the story about how it kicked off? Um, it was an April Fool's joke, right? It was, it was an April Fool's joke. And, and then that, you know, got a ton of attention and got like a lot of buzz. And then that spawned and turned into the actual game. And, and that's. That's a lot of, you know, what, what I think is going to happen with this convergence of, you know, brands getting into the game of, you know, sponsoring content creators and you have things like, you know, toy companies, like you look at Hasbro and hotels of the world, they're actively looking to figure out how do I make like the next kids like movie and, you know, why? Because they want to make products and they want to sell you products and, and that's, that's, I think, you know, the evolution of what's going to start blurring is that content isn't just going to be content anymore and it isn't just going to be advertisement like it's going to be you know the launch pad for brands it's going to be the launch pad for actual products so you know pokemon go can come from an april fool's joke i mean think about really then if you get more content that's going to get eyeballs and that's going to spin and evolve into you know whole other category of things that could become, you know, commerce and brands. All right, one more question for me, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience. So start thinking about great questions that you're curious to know from our panelists. Uh, but the last question I always end the podcast with is, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? And I know this is a big question, so I'm going to give you some time to think about it and share a potential answer, right? So if I were starting a business in the online video space today, I would look at this trend of, there's so many different video sites that we use from Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, live streaming services, et cetera. And in many cases, we give away our data and don't think twice about it, right? We don't understand how advertisers are using that information and targeting us. And especially when you think about kids on devices and managing preferences, I think there's a big need for, whether it's a tech solution or something else, to help you control your data, give you privacy, and also securely manage access across all those platforms. So now I'll pose the question to you. What do you guys think would be a great business to start in the online video space? There's so many. I mean, there's so there's there's few wrong answers to this. <laughs> I would say starting a SPOD platform, unless it's Crunchyroll or WWE Network, if you're trying to go like mass market to millennials or something, 
probably not the right market for it. There's already a lot of players there. I think that if I were to start one, I would start one that would broadly be defined as a content company in the way that it's going after passionate niche audiences who are underserved right now, building your own followers under these niche audiences, and then becoming the the kind of creative entity. Kind of like, I think what Defy Media is doing is really interesting. I'm saying this as them being a competitor to us. The fact that they kind of control Screen Junkies, which has a really passionate, specific audience, and, and Smosh is a bit more mass market, but they've got a passionate audience, and a handful of others, and they really own it, they really own that audience, is really smart. And I think if people can kind of crack that high impact, but maybe not million dollar per episode concepts and really build a fan base around a series of properties, then you can start having brands play in the influencer space without having to deal with influencers, which is sometimes difficult. So I think I would start a content company. We focus on kids and family. So I think, you know, posing that question, I might say, well, there is this completely other end of the spectrum. And that's, there's actually content space in general, like there's not enough focus also on really like you think about like boomers and like retired like folks that have a lot of time, they spend a lot of time consuming content and there's actually not that much content being made really that is targeted and specific for their taste and for what they, you know, are interested in. And I and I've heard people be like, oh well they're not, you know, they're not the target that much. They're not on mobile devices and they're not on, you know, they're they don't have iPads or they don't they don't have tablets. And and I think that's actually not true. Like you look and see, like, you know, yes, people over the age of 55, 65, they do have mobile phones, they do have tablets, and more than ever now, you know, their kids and their grandkids are showing them how to use it and going on YouTube and being able to say, like, here's a funny video, right? Like, their grandkids are saying, oh, let me show you, like, this content. And and so for them, they know how to access those things. But right now, what's happening is maybe the content isn't necessarily relevant to them. They, you know, they don't care to, like, see... PewDiePie, but that doesn't mean that there isn't an opportunity to create content that is going to be relevant. And, you know, there's a whole lot of them and they have time, they have disposable income. There is actually a really, really interesting market. I should actually really think about it. We should discuss whether or not we want to get into that. If I was going to start a company tomorrow, it would probably be some combination of uh, direct response meets affiliate networks meets e-commerce meets, you know, all the meat and potatoes crap of selling stuff online, focused on specific niches that are, you know, SEO friendly and underserved, and I bring video into that. You'd be so bored if you did that. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, what we're, what, how we're thinking about live streaming and just the potential there, I would probably, maybe I'd start a company where, like, I set up a box for people that they can film weird experiences. And I guess that's kind of what BuzzFeed is doing. But I'm inspired by the idea of finding a way to capture experiences in a controlled setting and let that be the kind of takeaway and, and let that kind of rawness speak for itself um, rather than kind of curating that in a way that's artificial. So I don't know, some turnkey way of, of capturing experiences in a box. 
All really cool answers. I'm excited to maybe see some of these companies come to fruition one day. If not from you, then our listeners can uh, turn those into cool businesses. So now we'll turn it over to you guys, our live audience. Do you have any questions you want to pose to our, our distinguished panel? Do you see live shaping as a mechanism for micro-windowing, sort of similar to what Mr. Robop was doing? Because obviously with on-demand and S-Spot and everything else, urgency goes out the window. I can get, it's the, the death of s I can wait three days, it's totally fine. But if you're going to live stream your first episode, in the middle of the day and I have no idea, I'm going to jump to my computer to find it. Do you think that's sustainable? Or is that like the Apple Music Spotify method all over again, where it's a novelty today? then people don't really care if you drop the Beyonce album overnight, they'll just go. Like, is that a real business model, or is that something that'll go away? So real quick, just to repeat the question, will live streaming be used for micro-windowing? I think we're seeing traditional windows collapse, or at least get shortened, and do we have an opportunity with live streaming to create exclusive content opportunities for fans? Uh, yes. I think that the, the kind of joy of live is caters to a super fan audience. And oftentimes when you have an entertainment property, you want to give your super fans extra so you can deepen that fandom so that if a network tries to cancel you, those are the people who are going to be petitioning them to say no. They're going to buy your t-shirt and they're going to come to your Comic-Con panel. There's a lot of value there, right? So, uh, yes, I think that micro windows are going to be valuable. And even more than that, I think that the live streaming audience is going to be just kind of like a home, at least for big media companies, to all things uber exclusive, right? So I think that the the trend of the after show, like the Chris Hardwick universe, I don't think that's a trend. I think that's sticking around, right? Uh, it's because a lot of those things, I mean, frankly, the way that like an after buzz TV, Maria Menounos' company does it, it's reasonably cheap to do and you can pound it out pretty quickly. So why not, right? Because that's just deepening and deepening fandom. So yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. I don't see it going anywhere. I mean, again, it's pretty cheap to make. And I think, I actually, I, I know we originally really thought of it as kind of the super fan's dream to connect with an influencer. But I, I actually, I can even just speak for myself as a woman. I want to see things happen. I want to see things being made and see things happen. And even maybe like see a moment of like awkwardness captured or like unexpected spontaneity. And I think, it's very little to, you know, you don't have to like, um, you don't have to prepare yourself to watch this big experience. It's kind of um, casual. And so I think um, it will continue to happen in a more frequent way. So I have a question regarding this content strategy from a marketer standpoint. So I'd love to get your take on, um, you know, understanding big brands like Disney or Warner Brothers have budgets for custom graphics for each whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, um, different kinds of cutdowns of videos, but when you're um, more like a bootstrapped company or a startup and you're thinking about your content strategy and then you have something like Instagram comes up and you know, me or Snapchat, where do you focus your time and how do you guys go about thinking overall about content strategy across the different social platforms? So how do you think about content strategy from a brand marketer's chair? And maybe this is a good question for Louisa, given your background. That's a tough one. It's one that we actually have that conversation a lot. Um, and, and we think about, you know, we think about like the personalities behind um, each particular platform and, and also, you know, where and what kind of experiences um, and, and also like functionality of the platform. I think, you know, when Instagram introduced 
really, you know, basically their Snapchat offering. Um, we we had a lot of conversations around the office. It's like, okay, well, you know, what does this mean? Like, how are we now going to differentiate the type of content streams between Snapchat and then what's what's on Instagram? And what exactly, you know, like, are we? There's also the conversation of are we going to abandon Snapchat altogether, given that that functionality, you know, kind of basically sits on Instagram and has bigger user base, and then now you have the ability to be able to have kind of like that memories function plus still a gallery on top of it. I think what it comes down to, though, it really does have to do with, we look at, we take a look at and see, um, well, what what exactly, you know, what's the current existing sort of like audience base and what's what's their profile and, and really kind of get down to well, is there a way in which you can differentiate like the different streams and also maybe like create a path to be able to push one onto the other and onto the other so that you're you're not forcing them necessarily to have to like hit all of it to be able to get the experience. But if they do, you know, they're gonna get, you know, a little bit extra on top of it. So it's it's like cake right so you have this like really good cake and then you add a different layer onto it and then you have you know like a cherry on top of the frosting so cake's still pretty good without the cherry but you know you you have it all and it's it's a really great experience and it kind of gets to well then what kind of a fan are you right like the uber fan is going to want to have that full experience but you know, for we talk about like Facebook is highly shareable. It's easy to share, and it's really easy to be able to get more. You know, sort of like uh, viral content on there versus like Instagram has a slightly different experience. So I think it's really about creating uh, a stream, not creating just about like the vertical streams, but it's really creating a path and saying, well, if you you know start from here, that's going to create sort of more shareability, and then you start to you know give them reasons to push. We also talk about this kind of all day long, but we, um, before we started investing in uh, our own original social content, we, we were reversioning and we continue to do so, reversioning our, our library content um, that's kind of ever, evergreen and, and, you know, focused on lifestyle content that everyone wants to watch. But there's only so far you can take a, you know, 10 minute video down to like a 15 second you know, video. So I think with cutting down for us, like this was just a decision that was made that particularly with Instagram, where like 15 seconds is kind of the sweet spot. Um, we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to go compromise to that extent. So for us, we can take a 10 minute video easily, cut it down to a minute on Facebook and not lose um, the takeaway um, and kind of supplement with graphics and, and whatever the viewer needs for that sound off experience. But for Instagram, it's just too much. You know, we're trying to accomplish a lot in each video, so it's just one we couldn't do. <laughs> so the question used the words brand marketer, content strategy, and then Louisa said actually the word shareability. So we'd be remiss if Eric didn't manage <laughs> on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think of, you know, brand marketing sometimes as, as fishing, and it's like how many fish hooks are you throwing out there? And each one of these social channels is a different line. And so, you know, I'm typically in the mindset of, of finding people where they are. And I think then the other piece to think of is what's the goal of the brand and what are you actually trying to market? So when we did a video for Cricket Wireless you know, last month, 
the goal was broad brand awareness, right? So we could go everywhere and it was relevant. If, oops, if we're going for something that's more direct response um, oriented, that might then influence the decision. And then I think the third piece to keep in mind is just what are your resources? Like, you know, how much time do you have? How much money do you have? That defines a lot. I'll just say one, just micro bit. Um, I would recommend, I mean, you only have X amount of time, so don't limp into a platform. If you can think of a really cool strategy on the platform, go into that platform, right? So I still think the most underutilized social network for marketing is Giphy. Nobody thinks of that as a primary, but they totally should because you go on Facebook and people do reactions and Giphy's. You go on Twitter, people are putting GIFs up. Like it's an incredibly shareable medium. And if you were to have your hashtag on there or you were to have your at symbol on there and you're able to create really good experiences or something funny or on brand, totally. And it's pretty easy to do, right? So uh, I think you got to start with creative first. And if you think like, oh, I've got that repeatable, awesome branded thing that I can do on Instagram and you think that it's going to catch fire, then go for it. Whereas if you go, well, I'm going to go for Twitter because I have to be on Twitter, then don't do Twitter. Just because it's a fun idea that I thought was cool when I heard about it. So if you have a very specific market that you're going after, creating a custom snap filter around an event is really cheap. It's kind of a guerrilla marketing tactic that I just thought was really cool. I was like, oh, that genius idea. We should do that all day long. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Um, I think uh, going back to you guys' this conversation about content creators trying to move up the ladder in terms of premium content and doing the $10 videos and things like that, uh, what's everyone's thoughts on live events? You know, I mean, we're starting to see these tours, and I think it's a similar kind of path where the big guys do it first. Eventually, more and more people are going to show up and try to do their own tour shows and different things. I'd love for your guys' thoughts on the sustainability of that and that business. What are your thoughts on live events and tours? Uh, if you can make the revenue work, God bless you. Because the amount of overhead and planning that has to go into a live event, right now you need to have a pretty massive influencer. Like we're helping with the tour right now with Roman Atwood and Fusi, who are two of the biggest people on YouTube. And it's certainly not a million dollar tour, right? Um, I think that if you're like a band or someone that people are used to paying 50 bucks a ticket for, you probably have a better shot. But I think that a lot of the kind of vlogger tours and the meet and greet tours, uh, when you think about the size of the team and the venue and having to do splits and the fact their audience isn't buying beer when they get there, it's it's really hard to make it work. That's why skill is always a good thing to have right. your <laughs> One of the things that I've seen that's really interesting that um, some of our creators are doing on the network side um, Yolanda Gamp um, from How to Cake It is a, um, an incredible artist of cake making. She's incredible. Check out her channel. Um, but she's doing these kind of live events where she creates these masterpieces and it's, it's, it's on a subscription basis. I don't know what the price is, but you like get a kit on how, you know, the recipe kit and then you tune in live and you can ask her questions. And at the end of the day, like she has a skill nobody else has. It's amazing to watch. And I think people will pay for that the same way they will for a musical skill or anything else. So I think, yeah, the fandom thing, I don't know if I have hope for that um, long term, but I think skill wins. My completely uninformed opinion on it is that it depends completely on how passionate your audience is. 
I think uh, just a, a bit of a counterexample is we've seen creators actually utilize the um, live events to be able to really leverage that as a grassroots way to be able to actually get more of an audience and not thinking about it from like a profitability standpoint, but really just sort of like getting out there to be able to drive even sort of more affinity and then later on being able to capitalize off of that. And, and that there is something about, you know, being there live and engaging with people. It's pretty incredible. Like you go to, especially, you know, as I mentioned, we're all about kids and family. We have an artist that we work with. And he um, does these, like, live tour shows where he goes into, like, a, you know, into a school or into, like, a local community. And, and they they do, like, live drawings and live sort of events. And you can see that you know, the community rallies around it. And then he ends up you know, getting that following and they tell their cousins and their friends and, and it's like every single place that he hits, you can see the hot spot of the people that end up following him from there. So um, like the events themselves, probably from a profitability standpoint, not huge, but I think the down, you know, impact of that has been for him like very lasting. Well, there you have it. The future of the online video space is bright. Thank you guys so much for sharing your insights. Please join me in giving a warm round of applause to our awesome panelists. That was so much fun. You guys are awesome. Really appreciate it. Stay around, hang out. We're going to have beer and wine uh, and other refreshments. So we hope you'll get a chance to talk with the panelists and uh, chat with one another. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Bye.